Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to the Universe Next Door. Today we are barging back into that uh, exciting locked box. Well, it's not exactly a locked box, it's an open box of Daniel chapters 8 through 12. You know, we could actually start at Daniel chapter 2, the image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the gold head and the silver uh, upper chest, the arms and so forth, the, the brass midsection, and then the iron legs and then the toes feet and toes made of iron clay mixture what does that mean daniel you're needed in the interpretation room hi nick shalna how's it going how are you doing well <laughs> uh, do you need somebody to uh, interpret your dreams nowadays or yeah, are they pretty, pretty straightforward that's <laughs> yeah. great well a uh, nick shalna is such a great blessing to us we uh, are thankful for him he's a uh, student at Trinity College, uh, studying um, biblical uh, ministries and apologetics and all kinds of cool stuff. And he's also ministering to the great uh, Countryside Baptist Church. Do I have the name right? Yeah, very good. Right. Uh, working with youth ministries, doing a fantastic job. We thank you so much for your role as uh, kind of the overseer and tech manager and uh, the one who does it all. Uh, with me here on the Universe Next Door. We hope that you're enjoying a beautiful set of uh, fall breezes and and maybe even seeing changes in those trees, uh, the beautiful colors of fall beginning to pop out around, around you. I was wondering, you know, when I get up to Elizabeth, New Jersey here in a few days, I'm going to be there October uh, 5th, speaking at La Familia Defiende la Fe, which means the family defends its faith. It's going to be a great opportunity. You can actually uh, go to our website, apologetics.org, and there on uh, at the top of the page, you'll see uh, news, the link to news, and there you'll catch the latest newsletter. And so um, we have a newsletter that has a link to the Facebook page of La Familia Defiende la Fe. I'm going to be speaking three times, twice in English and once in Spanish. Yo voy a compartir sobre los datos científicos que apoyan la existencia de, de Dios. Okay, I'm going to be sharing, uh, so let me translate that, scientific data supporting the existence of God. Okay, so you can actually hear uh, a couple talks on scientific evidence for God and Christianity in English, or if you prefer, you can just drop by when I'm speaking in Spanish. Yes, yes, I do struggle along in Spanish. I, I do okay. <laughs> There's a little rust here and there, but I try to... Uh, brush that away. Anyway, so we are excited to be in the thick of a very busy fall ministry. We ask your prayer as we head to the countries of Moldova that is snuggled in between Romania and Ukraine. That'll be the first week of November. And so we'll be uh, sharing uh, evidence for Christ, for Christianity, and the existence of God in the country of Moldova for about six or seven days, speaking in universities and other secular venues, and also jetting over to Vienna, Austria, and Bratislava, which is the capital of the Slovak Republic, coming back 
uh, here to the area, to the uh, Tampa Bay area around the 11th of November. So thank you so much for those of you who mark these um, ministries on the calendar for prayer. Meanwhile, here, as uh, we are speaking about Daniel here on from our base at Trinity College in Tampa Bay, uh, we want to just make you aware that there is a breakthrough, a significant breakthrough that really just keeps simmering and bubbling and and uh, kind of popping out new, uh, I could almost call it like a ricochet effect. In other words, the the impact just keep keeps bouncing and and uh, almost igniting new impacts. Uh, it just keeps, um, it's like a chain reaction, I guess. So, and what the original comment was, it was an essay, uh, Giving Up Darwin, and David, we've mentioned it before briefly, but David Galerter, uh, professor of computer science at Yale University, wrote the original essay, and then uh, that came out on, I think it was on May 2nd, at the Claremont Review of Books, so when he did that, he articulated, it's about a 15-page essay, very, very interesting. And he explains why, after reading Steve Meyer's book, uh, Darwin's Doubt, uh, on the Cambrian fossil explosion, very thorough study, 420 pages. And when he read also the, the book Debating Darwin's Doubt, which is the response to the various critics, you know, to the criticisms that that uh, book drew over a period of months, and he read both books, and he said, uh, along with another book, which well, I'll just mention in passing by David Berlinski, The Deniable Darwin, he said his you know, faith in Darwin, to put it in my own description, was, was left in tatters. There was nothing left of it. He had completely lost confidence in the Darwinian paradigm, the Darwinian explanation, that random mutation selected you know, through this supposedly wonderful, powerful, invisible hand of natural selection, was crafting all the wonders of biology, he said that theory was dead, completely, totally gone, history in the trash can. And again, I'm, I'm giving my own description, but it's pretty close to what he is saying. You know, he kind of like, it's almost like he lost a friend, a friend had died. And and he said, I'm not necessarily at all embracing this new theory of intelligent design. It's a legitimate theory. It's on the table for consideration. You know, I'm aware of it. I'm aware of its strengths. And, and he says, I, I don't think it's proven itself yet. But anyone who just dismisses the new theory and embraces the old theory is doing more on the basis of emotion and um, religious fervor. I mean, how often does a Yale, Nick, how often does a Yale professor in the area of sciences describe Darwinian supporters as, as supporting their theory with simply religious fervor? How often does that happen? Uh, never. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Correct. Very perceptive answer. Yes, truly, never. I mean, never. I don't think there's one in the history of the United States, well, since Darwin's theory has been become dominant, which is really the 1880s when it was quietly dominant and then more officially dominant by the 1930s, 40s, 50s. Uh, there was no question uh, that that was fact, that that was proven, that that was established, you know, hist natural history. And then David Galerinter, bless his heart, you know, not, not a follower of Christ. I think he's um, a Jewish believer, a believer in, in Judaism of some um, stripe. He didn't identify himself. But in the interview that was done by, uh, I believe it's uh, was it Peter Robinson of the Hoover Institution, 
um, he, he basically uh, shared his journey, and, and, and it was very touching. I mean, he just described step by step his desire to just know the truth. And so this is a major breakthrough, and, and if you would um, want to just check this out, again, you can go to our um, newsletter, our most recent newsletter that just was published uh, through Constant Con- Contact, and it's there on our website. Um, we'll just look at the top of the webpage, and just go. you can go either go to the News tab or look for, um, again, Cracks in Darwin's Theory. Just the keyword is Cracks. And just look for that at the top of our webpage. So if you um, want to just go to that letter, then the, the links are embedded within it. You can also see the um, reaction of the biographer of John Paul II, uh, George Weigel, reacted. And also, you can actually then link to the essay itself. A professor at Dallas Seminary, a friend of mine, Timothy Warren, read the essay, and he said, fantastic, amazing. Read the whole thing and said, um, you know, how much longer will these guys cling to their theory? And just in, you know, it's like a sinking ship. Well, let's talk about the other theory, the theory that Daniel was put together in the second century. There is a theory, and, and it really dates to a skeptic of Christianity after Christ had come, after Christianity had begun to spread, a guy named Porphyry. Uh, Porphyry arose, again, we're talking about in, in the 200s, and so um, he was uh, combating Christianity, trying to bring back a, a different religious worldview uh, for consideration, and, and he was charging, he was accusing the Daniel, who wrote the book of Daniel, of being pseudo-false Daniel. In other words, somebody, he said in the second century, after Antiochus Epiphanes, had arisen and tried to stamp out the true religion, the Jew, you know, Jewish, uh, the Torah faith in Jerusalem, uh, and somebody who, who knew all the, the twists and turns, the ups and downs of the Jewish history from Nebuchadnezzar, the time of Babylon, you know, so we're talking about 605 B.C. to 539, that's the Babylonian Empire, and, and, and that next series of empires, the Persian Empire, which then lasted uh, about 200 years, 539 to uh, 331, okay? Um, the, then the Grecian Empire succeeded, and then the Roman Empire. And the description of those four empires, but especially, in this case, the Grecian period, when it was kind of divided up after Alexander, Alexander died in 323 B.C. He went into a fever and lasted 10 days, and poop, he was gone. This is at the height of his power. He had just conquered the world, and then he was gone. So his empire fell into four pieces. We were mentioning this last week. And the details of that, you know, that series of events are set forth in a basic outline in Daniel chapter 8, and then there's set forth an exquisite detail in Daniel chapters 10, 11, and 12. Okay, now I'm leaving out 9. We can come back and deal with chapter 9 uh, as a separate, um, maybe zoom in on 9 here in, here in the next week or two. But Daniel 8 in a sketch, you know, and then basically uh, 10, 11, and 12. 10 is just the intro. Basically, the angel said, get ready, get ready, here's his coming. 
And then as Daniel is, is swooning and, and a little bit tired, he, he keeps touching him. Are, are you tired? Let me touch you. And he, whoop, he comes back. And then Daniel is kind of like getting tired again. You need another touch? He touches him again. Whoop, you're back. Okay. And then the, so the, the vision really begins in chapter 11. So the Daniel 11 vision, which spills over into 12, that's the end of the book. Okay. So the Daniel 11 and 12 is the details. It's the play-by-play of the same vision that is sketched in Daniel 8. So, Nick, we got it? Okay? Got it. Okay. Daniel 8, the big the big picture. Daniel 11 and 12, zooming in on the details. Now, this is where it gets dicey and exciting for the Christian. I might even say for the Orthodox Jew, if, you're, if, if someone listening to this program happened to be you know, of that wing, or maybe even conservative. Conservative Jews often believe in the literal truth of the of the Tanakh, the Old Testament. But for sure, the Orthodox, those of Orthodox Jewish faith embrace without apology you know, the literal truth. And so they would say, of course, this is divinely inspired. It, it's the words of God revealed through Daniel. And so Porphyry, to get back to his theory, he said, no, this is so close to the details, to the back and forth, even down to like shenanigans, you know, somebody um, basically offering uh, a wife to um, another person, okay? You know, somebody giving a daughter to another king to establish an alliance, somebody sending a tax collector to kind of get control of a province and then that tax collector winds up, you know, assassinating the king. Little details like this. Amazing uh, political and socioeconomic, uh, I would say, nitty-gritty contour. Uh, so you got the big picture, but you've got the actual uh, details set forth in these two chapters uh, of 11 and 12. Now, this is where it gets also a little bit fascinating and exciting for the future because in verse 36 of Daniel chapter 11 after covering the last bad guy and actually the first part of Daniel 11 covers roughly the period of this is BC I mean the the little country of Israel had no king you know since 586 when the last Davidic king was taken off the throne, was deposed, there was no king in Israel. The next king is King Jesus when he comes to the throne, at least prophetically, you know, and that doesn't happen until, of course, in terms of the anointing of Jesus um, at the time of his baptism. You could view that as the designating of King Jesus, and then, of course, he's exalted at his resurrection. So in, in terms of having a king in Israel, there is no king. So they're under the authority of either the Persian Empire, and in Daniel 11, the Persian Empire is covered in like one or two verses. It's really funny. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's talking about this, uh, the three, there's three quick kings, and then there's a king who was very wealthy. And that's talking about Xerxes, who, by the way, was a pretty famous biblical figure because it's the same as Ahasuerus, uh, the king who married uh, Esther. So you can just plug in the book of Esther at that point in uh, Daniel chapter 11. But then it's on to the Greek kings. And 
the Greek kings after the first king, uh, Alexander the Great, is, is killed, um, he's suddenly, very, very rapidly, at the height of its power, he's gone. And this is, by the way, this is also presented in Daniel chapter 7 and also Daniel chapter 8. All three of those chapters mention that the first Greek king is suddenly stripped from uh, his position at the height of his power and the the Greek and Grecian Empire is uh, replaced, if you will, by four subsets, four chunks, four parts. And that is itself dramatic. No wonder um, if if this truly was a prophecy given to Daniel by God, let's say around 535, 540, depending on which uh, prophecy, which dream revelation we're speaking of, then that is spectacular detail. But what really is amazing is when you get into the period, again, without a king, this is the, the whole entire period for basically 600 years to the time of Christ, we're dealing with the back and forth details in chapter 11 that are spectacular. And I'll just read a couple verses from Daniel 11, verse 20 from the ESV, uh, just for the fun of it. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, and, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same time, but to no avail. For the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. And then it, it talks about the rest of this um, story, the story of Antiochus Epiphanes. That's who we're talking about. Because the story of this evil, wicked, what, what is called a Seleucid king, a king of the north, because Israel was sandwiched in between the powerful kings of the south, the Egyptian kings known as the Ptolemies, and the kings of the north that were known as the Seleucids. Now, the kings of the south... From about 10 years after Alexander the Great, the kings of the south, the Ptolemies, were rather benign. They were rather easygoing and friendly toward uh, Jerusalem and Judea. They allowed the Jews to exercise their Jewish faith and just sort of, you know, there, there, be good, you know, be well behaved. But the kings of the north that periodically would try to come down and take control were more brutal, were more uh, intolerant, hostile. But then one king of the north that is being described here in great detail is none other than Antiochus Epiphanes. Well, do you know who he is a, a figure of? 
and he's described earlier in the book of Daniel. He is a figure of the Antichrist. People say, what? Who is this guy? I've never heard of him. Antiochus Epiphanes, a major figure in Jewish history. Most of us have heard of Hanukkah. Have you gotten your Christmas presents going there, Nick? Are you starting to gather them? <laughs> yeah, I'm working on that. <laughs> okay, I am too. Oh, yeah, that's right. i got to get my do-do list going here. Okay, well, uh, and if you're of a Jewish family, a Jewish background, have Jewish friends, you might want to get Hanukkah presents. Well, where did Hanukkah come from? It's a celebration of God's faithfulness to the Jewish people during this time of the Maccabees. The Maccabees, who were they? Well, the Maccabees were a holy family, a Jewish family, a faithful family who stood up against Antiochus Epiphanes, this evil, dastardly northern king, the ruler who came down and who swept through and tried to defeat the Ptolemies of Egypt and took control, literally took control, not only of Judea and Jerusalem, but, but literally slew a female pig on the altar in the temple. He completely uh, ruined. It was the abomination that um, was a, a figure. It was a, f- a kind of a, a shadow, a type of the future abomination of desolation, which will happen during the tribulation, which will happen when the future Antichrist presents himself. And so as you go on through this chapter, it gives detail upon detail up through verse 35. And then it's making references to the time of the end. And all of a sudden, there's a mysterious switching of gears. Verse 36, it describes the king who describes himself and points to himself as God. This king that basically takes the place of God, who exalts only himself and strength. Well, that king, who in his particular actions doesn't fit the, the, the story, that king, the details of verses 36 to the end of Daniel 11 and on into Daniel 12, which is describing the resurrection of the dead and the coming of, of basically the Messiah to the earth, the establishing of, of the new reign of God, the um, bringing of people into the kingdom. It's talking about three and a half years. We recognize those things as having to do with the tribulation. So what has happened in Daniel 11 between verses 35 and 36? We have a transition from the Antiochus Epiphanes, the foreshadowing of the Antichrist, right across time to the true Antichrist, the real Antichrist who will hear, you know, who knows when it could be. If If the rapture, if the catching up of the church were to happen today, um, I, I would say within you know a few days, weeks, months, and let's say a year or two, we would have the establishment of a covenant between the Antichrist and Israel, allowing for the practice of their ritual in a, in a restored temple. And therefore, then after three and a half years, you would have that Antichrist duplicating the same thing that the original you know, the prefiguring of Antichrist, Antiochus Epiphanes did when he stopped the sacrifice in the temple. But the future Antichrist, described in Daniel, starting in chapter 11, verses 36 through the end of that chapter, is clearly not Antiochus Epiphanes. The historical facts don't fit, the self-description doesn't fit, nor does the context fit. Because the context, as you go right on into chapter 12, as you go right on in, by the way, chapter 12, that division wasn't in the original book of Daniel. Some scribes, some, you know, 
holy man of the book um, put those in logically and sort of logically, but it's an unfortunate break, I think, because that's the, the 1136 and onward is the future phase of God's prophetic program. So we see powerful evidence, both of the past history of Israel in the struggle with Antiochus Epiphanes and the whole set of Ptolemy and Seleucid, both Egyptian and Greek rulers, in Daniel chapter 11. And the good news is that Christ is the one who will defeat the Antichrist. And Christ is the one who's defeated sin and death. And the Christ is the one who died for you, rose again. And you can trust him and receive eternal life today. Thanks for listening to The Universe Next Door. You've been listening to The Universe Next Door with Dr. Tom Woodward, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida and supported through the gifts of listeners just like you. To gather resources, continue the conversation, and support The Universe Next Door with your financial gifts, go to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. And join us again next time as we continue to seek the truth about life, faith, and worldview in The Universe Next Door.